0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a
1: people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm David Cooley We're counting down to the Academy Awards. The film Holdovers is nominated for five Oscars, including Best Picture, Supporting Actress, Original Screenplay, and Best Actor for Paul Giamatti. He's already won a Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Comedy. Our producer, Sam Brigger, spoke with Giamatti last month. Here's Sam. In The Holdovers, Paul Giamatti plays a
2: pompous and lonely classics professor named Paul Hunnam at a New England boarding school for boys in 1970. He's almost universally disliked by other faculty members and by students because of his impossibly high academic standards and merciless grading. The students also mock him behind his back because he has a lazy eye and bad body odor. The body odor is uncontrollable, the result of a rare disease commonly known as fish odor syndrome, but he doesn't do himself any favors in the way he treats his students, as he does here in this scene, handing out his students graded final exams.
3: I can tell by your faces that many of you are shocked at the outcome. I, on the other hand, am not, because I have had the misfortune of teaching you this semester. And even with my ocular limitations, I witness firsthand your glazed, uncomprehending expressions. Sir, I don't understand. That's glaringly apparent. No, it's... uh, I can't fail this class. Oh, don't sell yourself short, Mr. Coates. I truly believe that you can. I'm supposed to go to Cornell. Unlikely.
2: Hunnam also flunked a former student, the son of a major donor, dashing his chances at going to Princeton and going against the wishes of the school's headmaster. The headmaster decides to punish him. Hunnam must babysit students that have nowhere to go over winter vacation. At first, he has a handful of kids under his care. But most are rescued by one of their fathers, who whisks them off in a helicopter for a ski vacation, leaving only one, a smart but surly junior named Angus Tully, played by Dominic Sessa, whose mother and stepfather can't be reached to get permission for him to leave, as they're off on an overdue honeymoon. Hunnam and Angus make up a trio with the school's head cook, Mary, played by Davine Joy Randolph. Mary is mourning her son, Marcus, who was a scholarship student at the boarding school, but was killed in Vietnam. These three broken and lonely people, thrust together haphazardly, find a bond growing between them as they face the loneliest holiday. This is Paul Giamatti's second starring role in a movie by Alexander Payne. The first was the 2004 film Sideways. Paul Giamatti has also starred in American Splendor, Private Life, and Win-Win. He played the title role in the HBO miniseries John Adams and starred in the Showtime series Billions, which ended its run last October after seven seasons. Paul Giamatti, welcome back to Fresh Air. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So Alexander Payne
3: has said that he wrote the role of Paul Hunnam for you. What was it about the character that interested you? Well, everything about it. I mean, first of all, it was the fact that he was going to direct it that interested mm-hmm. me about it. You know, I would sort of do anything he wanted me to do. <laughs> yeah. um, I think I found the setting interesting. I found the time period interesting. I found the Christmas story aspect of it, the sort of Scrooge-like story of sort of, of kind of redemption and, and change and rebirth and selflessness interesting. The character was really wonderful. The language is wonderful. I think I found the character quite touching because I thought he's a guy who, as far as he's concerned, is doing absolutely the right thing. He's he's created this sort of persona for himself that, that feels very comfortable and safe to him at this place and conveying classical values in this way. And he's created this kind of fantasy world for himself. And... Uh, It it comes apart a little bit as the Mm -hmm. story goes on. This guy sort of has to let go of a lot of his shtick in some ways. And uh, I thought that was interesting. Is it tricky to play a role where in
2: the movie the character is disliked by lots of people, but you have to play that person in a way that the audience can empathize with?
3: Yeah, that's always sort of difficult. I mean, I think... um, you know, he's lived in this strange, rarefied world, in this world of intellect. And, you know, he's hobbled by his own intellect. It's, you know, the thing that, that makes him feel superior is the thing that keeps separating him, too. And, right. you know, he just doesn't go about anything the right way. But he's not wrong a lot of the time. So hopefully that comes across as somewhat appealing. But also I thought, you know, he's somewhat self-aware. He's, he takes pleasure in his own Nasty wit in a way that hopefully is funny to people, and and makes him somewhat appealing. So this movie takes place at a boarding
2: school in 1970. You actually were a student at a boarding school in the 80s. You <laughs> you were a day student. Yeah. So you, a decade later, although I. I bet these places don't change that quickly. <laughs> um, and you said that, that in preparation for the role, you thought a lot about your past and the people in it. I'm assuming the sort of people that went to your school. Mm. What did you take from those memories?
3: I did go to a school like that 10 years on from when the movie set. And it wasn't, I don't think, very different. There were girls there. Well, that's that, that's like, a, a big difference. A big, big difference, yes. <laughs> yeah. I'll say that. Um, but a lot of those men were still there. And for the most part, those they were men like this, and these old school guys. Um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't just the school. My, my whole life I grew up around teachers and academia. My father was a professor. My mother was a teacher. My grandparents were all teachers and professors. So teaching, teachers and teaching were around me a lot. But for sure, being a day student at one of those places is different than living there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think in some ways it could probably give me... a an anthropological perspective on it that maybe you don't have if you live there. Mm. So I had some distance on it to be able to observe it in some ways. Um, But absolutely, I mean, it was an interesting part to play. It's an interesting movie for me to watch because I think there was a ton of unconscious uh, memories um, affecting my system and I was ending up calling up all kinds of people I wasn't even aware of. Hmm. Uh, I was watching it and thinking, oh, my God, I just reminded myself of this colleague of my father's. I didn't even realize I was doing that. I had a friend who wrote to me and said, I went to high school with him, and he said, oh, you you were clearly doing the head librarian in this whole thing. And I thought, I didn't even think about the head librarian, but he's right. I do seem like the head librarian. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there was a ton, there was a deep well of people I was drawing on for this thing, even unconsciously. Some of it was conscious. I had a biology teacher who was very much like this guy, and I thought about him a lot. And I thought about these men a lot, you know, and they're interesting characters. They're, They're complicated, interesting guys. Your character has a lazy eye, and
2: you've sworn not to say how that was created, which is fine. Mm-hmm. I won't ask you about that. <laughs> okay. um, but you also, uh, you have this rare disorder whose name I'm not going to try to pronounce, but it's mm-hmm. commonly known as fish odor syndrome, mm-hmm. um, where your the character's body is unable to break down this chemical and, and has just a really unfortunate um, body odor issue. So, you know, as an audience, we... <laughs> we only have so many senses to experience the movie but um unfortunately i guess in this case but i was wondering like do, like do you think about that in your character as you're acting them like i'm i'm assuming you didn't spray yourself with some stuff no sort of no foul listen odor.
3: there would be people who would wear who would have like yeah. codfish, codfish cakes in their pockets and stuff yeah. like that um, i thought about doing that just to just to sort of mess with dom in particular but um, <laughs> but i didn't do that um I mean there's ways in which yes it, the the body odor thing is is I keep there's a there's a kind of you know a saying in theater particularly when you do Shakespeare that if you're playing the king, you don't have to play the king. Everyone around you plays that you are the king. Mm. And so I don't need to play that I smell like fish. Everybody around me gotcha. needs to play that I smell like fish. He's used to smelling like fish. Right. you know. So it, to, to a certain extent, they need to do it. There was actually some thinking in this movie. It was interesting with the hair and makeup people. They said to me in particular, you know... <laughs> I can't believe it. Bathe as little as possible (laughs) if you can. And I said, okay. So, and I think it it probably helps, you know, to give me an appearance of sort of, you know, there's a tactile sense probably about the guy that comes across because of that. Mm -hmm. Yes, and sort of, you know, and so that that, that helps too. So, you know, I rewatched Sideways in preparation
2: for this interview. And I was thinking there was probably going to be some similarities between – the Character Paul Hunnam and Miles from Sideways, but rewatching, there's actually a lot of similarities. Like, um, both are misanthropes who feel superior to a lot of people they encounter, both are would be writers, although um, they're teaching to kids and not necessarily always happy about that. Both have a pretty severe drinking problem, and, and in some ways, you know, you could see the character from the holdovers at what might happen to Miles from Sideways if he doesn't end up with his
3: love interest at the end of that movie. It is interesting. And, you know, it's it's a subject that both Alexander and I kind of danced around and didn't really talk about. And it's it's very funny that we didn't, because certainly you could see some, I could see all these similarities too. It'd be better asked to him how much he was consciously doing that, how much he meant to do that, that in some sense you really are seeing a similar guy at a different stage of his life. hmm Um, it's certainly, it's certainly, I I could, you're absolutely right. There's lots of similarities. There's ways in which it didn't feel the same to me though, too. He doesn't feel like the same guy to me. He feels like a more, I like this guy better than the other guy. Hmm. Um, I feel like he's got more kind of backbone Hmm. sort of, he's less self-pitying. He's more sort of, I think he's funnier. I think he's kind of. I just think he's got more going on than the other guy. Um, I liked him better as a as a person and a presence. I, I found him more fun to play. I, I I liked it. Maybe that could be the same guy 20 years on that I'm enjoying. I don't know. But um, but I, I could definitely see it. And in some ways I, I remembered thinking at a certain point it's a funny way. Maybe it is like sort of the sequel to Sideways that would never get made as technically a sequel to Sideways. I don't know. Right. But um, Alexander would be a good guy to ask about it. But in a funny way, we kind of avoided ever talking about it. I can't imagine the sideways too, but. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, no, you can't. You really can't. So maybe this is some sort of extension of it, yeah. Well, your character,
2: Miles, is a lover of wine, particularly Pinot Noir. In fact, that movie probably increased the cost of Pinot Noir mm-hmm. across the country. <laughs> um, but I-, I wanted to play a clip. Uh, where your love interest, Maya, played by Virginia Madsen, asks you why you love that wine so much. And, you know, your character, Miles, is, is talking about wine, but he's also really talking about himself. So let, let's hear that.
4: You can I ask you a personal question, Miles? Sure. Why are you so into Pinot? <laughs> I mean, it's like a thing with you. <laughs> uh,
3: I don't know. I don't know. Um... It's a hard grape to grow, as you know, right? it's it's thin-skinned temperamental, ripens early. It's, you know, it's not a survivor like Cabernet, which can just grow anywhere and uh, thrive even when it's neglected. No, Pinot needs constant care and attention, you know? And in fact, it can only grow in these really specific little tucked away corners of the world. And, and only the most patient and nurturing of growers can do it, really. Only somebody who really takes the time to understand Pinot's potential can then coax it into its fullest expression. And then, I mean, oh, its flavors, they're just the most haunting and brilliant and thrilling and subtle and ancient on the planet.
2: That's a scene from Sideways with our guest Paul Giamatti and Virginia Madsen. First of all, I just love how Virginia Madsen prefaces that question with, can I ask you a personal I, question? I was just thinking the
3: same thing, how funny that is, <laughs> that that's the deeply personal question. is <laughs> yeah. very funny.
2: So do you remember doing that scene?
3: Yes, very much so. I remember it vividly, yeah.
2: So yeah. Uh, can you talk about I mean, I'm sure that I'm sure when you saw the script, you're like, "Oh, this is a really good speech."
3: <laughs> yeah, I thought it was a really good scene, you know, and and I thought it was a nice speech. Yeah, and um, you know, it's 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 he he's not aware so much as she is of what they're really talking right, about. Right. You know, she's she's the one who's much more aware than than him, and so she sort of picks it up and really really brings it home with a beautiful speech that kind of freaks him out because then he realizes what they're actually talking about. And it sort of, it hits him and, you know, he's 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 really fallen for this woman. Um, but I remember shooting it absolutely. I mean, it was a wonderful, I remember every second of making that movie, yeah. probably because I was very nervous, <laughs> but also because it was a really special experience. I mean, it just felt, I'd never done anything like it before and and until holdovers he I'd never really done anything quite like it again um, because of the sort of intimate atmosphere that he creates and that was a very lovely, quiet, intimate evening that the whole crew was having you know and it was I remember it vividly and she was wonderful in it and just absolutely entrancing in it and uh, I remember it very well So do you recall what it was about acting that
2: first appealed to you?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to articulate. I mean, I had always loved play acting. I mean, from the time I was a very little kid, dressing up and being a character, and particularly as a kid, sort of monstrous and grotesque things, I was very drawn to sort of like... Uh, werewolves and mummies and things like that and sort of strange characters, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And I enjoyed sort of always the school plays and stuff, but I think when I did it in high school, there was a kind of sense of connection that and communication that was almost shockingly joyous that I felt. I've, you know it was not the easiest place in the world that place
1: mm-hmm.
3: and the the rough environments and right. and I felt a kind of you know for lack of a better word not 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 that I felt seen or something but I felt connected to people to the other actors and to the and I felt a sense of of communal effort that was really really exciting to me and as much as playing the character and getting laughs and doing all those things was great when I think about it now, I think it was it was genuinely this feeling of connection, and I can't articulate it much better than that. Was there a point when you
2: were thinking, "Well, this is something I should maybe consider pursuing"?
3: Well, later, yeah. I mean, I, I went to I went to Yale University and went to college, and then did it a lot of extracurricularly, and mm-hmm. sort of fell into that. I wasn't a major or anything there, and but I loved it, and it became obsessive to me, and. I left, and um yeah, it was sort of shortly after that that I think I started realizing it was something that i i should i wanted to do very badly, and i i I should your dad
2: died at the age of fifty one from a heart attack you've said that um it was because of your father's sudden death that you decided to become an actor
3: that before that you were thinking maybe becoming an academic well you know it's 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 all hard for me to sort of be entirely clear about it i mean like i say it was it was the thing i loved doing the most Mm -hmm. i think i thought well i should do something else because you know why being an actor i just didn't you know but i loved it and his dying was a very profoundly destabilizing thing for everybody in my family he was a very solid grounded figure in the world and for him to disappear in an instant at that young an age, freaked me out. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, and um, I think it, it did impel me to go. I, I, I'm going to pursue and do the thing that I love to do, because possibly your time is short. Sure, and you should really just you know. Kind of and go also, my father had instilled that in me, you know. And so all of a sudden, his absence made that. He's urging me always to do that throughout my life somehow, even more present in my mind. And I thought, I'm going to do the thing I love to do. It's what he would have said to me to do. And so I did.
2: Um, so your dad left academia and became the commissioner for Major League Baseball. And it sounds like he he loved baseball did. a lot of his life. Did, did that also make you feel like that you should pursue the things that you really love?
3: Yes, I think so. I think that was also a part of it. I can remember my dad when he left the presidency of Yale, and um, he sort of took kind of a year off, you know. He wasn't mm-hmm. really doing much, and and I was in college, and I think the baseball thing sort of came through, and I can remember him in this very kind of giddy way, <laughs> funny, giddy way, saying to me, well, I'm thinking about going back to teaching, but they've asked me to go, you know, they've asked me if I'm interested in going to baseball, what do you think? Yeah. And I was like, geez... I don't know. And I was a little bit like, jeez, oh, I don't know, do the safe thing and go back to teaching. And he was like, no, 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 I think I got to do baseball. And I was like, yeah, okay, do baseball. And he did. And it was very much him doing a thing. And I remembered thinking, oh, Yes, of course, he couldn't have done anything but go into baseball. Yeah. The guy was out of his mind with joy. <laughs> so, I mean, he was out of his mind that he could go to baseball games anytime. And, you know, I mean, it was, it was pure oxygen to the guy. So I don't know how I ever could have thought, like, don't
1: do that. Well, Paul Giamatti, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Paul Giamatti is nominated for Best Actor for his starring role in the film The Holdovers. He spoke with our producer, Sam Brigger. After a break, we remember comic Richard Lewis, who died of a heart attack Tuesday at the age of 76. And Justin Chang reviews Dune, Part 2. I'm David Bianculli, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes
0: from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep at night. Mattress Firm's sleep experts receive 200-plus hours of training annually to help you get your best rest. Upgrade your sleep with a tempur mattress made with a -a one-of-a-kind, infinitely adaptable temper material for exceptional support to help alleviate aches and pains. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day Sale and sleep at night.
5: This message comes from NPR sponsor Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? No matter what might be keeping you up, Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep. Mattress Firm will find you the right mattress from a wide selection of top brands at every budget. Plus, if you see a lower price somewhere else, they'll match it up to 120 nights with their low price guarantee. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and sleep at night. Restrictions apply. See mattressfirm.com or store for details. This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin.
1: Richard Lewis, the veteran stand-up comedian whose routines were full of caustic takes on love, life, and physical and mental health, died of a heart attack Tuesday. He was 76 years old. Richard Lewis was born in Brooklyn in 1947 and made his first appearance as a stand-up comic on stage in Greenwich Village in 1971. It took him eight years to get on television, and he and TV were an uneasy fit. His one starring role was in the late 80s and early 90s, playing Marty Gold opposite Jamie Lee Curtis in the ABC sitcom Anything But Love. Here's a quick scene featuring the two. His mother is visiting, he's avoiding her, and Jamie Lee's character is trying to get the two to reconcile. She's your mommy. I know.
4: Just spend some time with her, mm. talk with her, mm. listen to her, let her tell you about her business. Mm.
6: Look, the only time we were ever alone together without
1: fighting is when she was pregnant with me. And even then, I came out screaming. That series lasted four seasons. But before, after, and sometimes during those years, Richard Lewis worked hard to maintain a high profile. He performed in a series of popular stand-up TV specials over the years, and their titles alone reflected the confessional, complaining territory Lewis had carved out for himself. Some of his TV specials and comedy tours were titled I'm Exhausted, I'm Doomed, and The Magical Misery Tour. And all the time he was touring, Lewis was embraced and showcased by some of the most respected and influential comedians in show business. David Letterman had Richard Lewis on his late night show more than any other guest.
6: I'd lived here all my life. I come back to the show. And I'm going to go back, and I, you know, I got a call today. I mean, a guy called me up at the hotel, because, you know, you publicized where we're staying, which is great. Mm-hmm. And
3: uh,
6: <laughs> this guy was angry at me. for There used to be a game, Prisoner Ball, in second grade. We used to just try to, it was really a sadistic game. Used to try to, Prisoner Ball? It just kills many people on the other side. That's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was angry at me. You know, if people harbor these little incidents in their lives. I have thousands of them. And this guy, I'm sure he's in therapy about it now, but he chose to call me. Good luck on The Letterman Show. And then he says, I hated you. I hated you for that. So that's the kind of mood I'm in. It just, that call happened about an hour ago.
1: Mel Brooks cast him as Prince John in his 1993 movie, Robin Hood, Men in Tights. And Larry David, a childhood friend, cast Richard Lewis as an even more acerbic version of himself in the first episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm in 1999, a show on which he's appeared off and on ever since including earlier this month in a scene where Richard and Larry are riding a golf cart, chatting while driving to the next tee. I did Wordle again today. I'm a Wordle wizard, man. I did it in three tries. That's three days in a row, man. Wow, you're really on
6: a good streak. I'm on a huge streak. That's nice. All right, let's see if I can continue my streak. I know, you've been unbelievable. What is this all about? How are you doing this? You know why? I sat on a bench
2: this morning and overheard a lesson.
6: So I've had thousands of hours of lessons. Two minutes on that bench, this guy changed my life. What kind of tips? Vertical drop. Yeah. Horizontal tug. Horizontal tug? Vertical drop. Horizontal tug. Now, I've dropped before, yeah. but I've never tugged. And now I'm tugging. Oh, maybe I should tug. You got to tug. Can you teach me how to tug? I'll teach you how to tug. This is fantastic. Can I tell you something? Sure.
1: I think this is the happiest I've ever been in my life. I
6: don't even know who I'm looking at right now. How is something good happening to me? No one on the planet would believe that you're how happy.
4: How is this possible? But
1: I Terry Gross spoke with Richard Lewis twice. The first time was in 1988 to talk about his new HBO comedy special, I'm Exhausted. It combined his live performance on stage in Chicago with his off-stage depiction of a nervous breakdown.
6: Thank you. I just, you're a your, your, your great audience. I just, you know, I, just, I wish I could feel better about feeling good, quite frankly. I just... <laughs> My hypochondriac, my grandparents, I just, they lived in a place that made me so out of it in Florida. I think the, the condo was called Crestfall, and that was the name of it, you know? So I feel, you know, and they, they bought me little gifts. I mean, well, they were very negative. We had like a little depression fair in the backyard for my birthday, and uh, we used to throw wooden hoops around prescription drugs was a big thing, they had no tomorrow land, which is sort of a big thing, and, and pin the blame on a donkey was a major game in our house.
4: How did the "I'm Exhausted" show come about? Do you go around saying to friends all the time, "Oh God, I'm exhausted"?
6: I uh, I said that actually, I think, to my mother moments after I was born. I just have always been exhausted for the fear that I wouldn't do enough work. Uh, That's a whole other area, isn't it? I don't always go around saying I'm exhausted. I'm a good friend. If I went to a funeral, I wouldn't be insensitive and say, (laughs) "I'm I'm exhausted." I I just uh, I had been exhausted prior to doing this this special for HBO. But the, the problem was the special had to be done in about two weeks. And that was like, uh, this should have been an episode of Nova, you know, how, how a Jewish man with bad posture who searches for perfection is told by executives that, fine, but we have to have it delivered in two weeks. And, uh, you know, we pulled it off, I think. I don't know. But I was exhausted doing it, and I think it shows But in a, in a positive, affectionate way.
4: Did you enjoy being sick when you were a kid?
6: Well, uh I did because I usually wasn't and uh, but p- people did. It was like a a hypochondriacal kabuki theater I put on <laughs> for the family and uh, I had different makeups for different ailments, of course. Uh the flu I felt was the dead giveaway. I mean, it was uh it was this kabuki very white makeup and it was almost a mask like effect and it was frightening. I was half a bison, half a Jewish man and it was i come down to breakfast knowing that my family would shriek and then have me stay home, and they normally did.
4: Are you a hypochondriac now?
6: Yes, sadly.
4: What are the diseases you most often think you're getting?
6: Well, I would say uh, mostly, and and not to make light of diseases because they're they're so horrific, and certainly the sexual stuff now is so frightening. Uh, I basically get worried when I see any kind of rash, even if the slightest rash. I feel it will eventually spread into just cover me like Elephant Man. And I run to every SAV store. There's a lot of SAV boutiques in Los Angeles, thank God. <laughs> and I have a rash man in Beverly Hills who I like. But basically, uh, it's rashes that scare me more than anything. Um, and also, any kind of back pain, uh, I always fear, and I always did as a kid, sadly. Whenever I got a sore throat, for example, I really felt... It would never go away. This was, this is, this was when I should have known then that I that psychotherapy was right around the corner. <laughs>
4: um, do you ever have audiences who are so well adjusted that they don't get your jokes about neuroses?
6: Um, I don't. I don't like to consider any audience well adjusted seriously. <laughs> I don't. I hate. I don't. First, I don't like to judge people, and I, certain, <laughs> I and I certainly wouldn't judge people in that light. I don't find too many people are well adjusted, and uh, if there were, I wouldn't go over very well. If I bomb, if I ever bomb, thank God I don't bomb as much as you do when you start out. I would, I would just blame myself.
4: You've done the David Letterman show a lot of times. How many times? Yeah. Do you, you keep count? I, I would. It was. I, I thought
6: it was somewhere in the uh, high thirties. You know.
4: Do you prepare for it when you go on?
6: <clears throat> in unbelievable fashion. It, it's the, uh, the only reason why I have done stand-up in the last six years or have given me uh, impetus to do it, and, um, because I never had an audience before like a regu- on a regular basis. So I, I, I write down thousands and thousands of jokes a month. It takes me days and days to whittle it down to 30 or 40 ideas that I I'd want to get to to the show. Not to mention we ad-lib a lot on the show too, but I prepare in an enormous fashion for the show. <laughs> And I feel I had a problem sexually. I felt. Ever since I grew up, I just, uh, and we broke up. She was saying that she's bad-mouthing me to my pals. Oh, she, right? said, she said, I gave her an anti-climax, she was telling my friends. Oh. <laughs> and I couldn't even, that can could be dangerous, couldn't well, dangerous. We couldn't even have it? foreplay. She wore, like, a Rupik's bra when she came yeah. into the bedroom. <laughs> and I blame my family. My parents, I know they made love, and yet they, it was like Nixon, like Watergate. They would yeah. cover it up. Very, very, yeah, well, quiet They, about they, it, they yeah. didn't want to let us hear sure. that they oh, were screaming. Yeah. That, yeah. My father would go, uh, that's gin. He would say, that's That's gin. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Doesn't Letterman strike you as a pretty healthy, well-adjusted guy?
6: Well, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I hate to judge people's good health. I'll say this. Uh, I-, I think so. I, I mean, he's, so, he's we're such we're so night and day together. I mean, why I think the chemistry has been effective for him and me. Uh, when I sit next to him, and I'm t- I talk about, particularly when I talk about my innermost feelings and certainly sexuality, uh, I look in his face. He's only a foot away from me, and I, and I and I. It makes me laugh because I'm not doing this to make him embarrassed, but he does get. I feel legitimately embarrassed, and it's cute to me. But his eyes start to recede. They go back like to the Panama Canal. I can't even <laughs> see his face. It's like all, little orphan Annie's eyes.
4: Can I ask you what your bar mitzvah was like? And here's why I ask it. For uh-huh. a lot. I mean, a bar mitzvah is. In Jewish terms, it's a religious ceremony to mark the beginning of manhood. It's, right. um, but for a lot of people, it's like their uh, their first opening act. You know, like their first initiation into show business, because like you're you're the star of the show. There's a band, there's an MC. You know, everybody in your family gets to dance and everything, and you're and you're the star. Was it like a <laughs> what kind of what kind of a mitzvah did you have?
6: Spielberg could not have done justice <laughs> to what I had. And first of all, my father, uh, who has passed on was the greatest caterer in the area, New Jersey and in parts of New York. He was really a genius. So, of course, he catered my bar mitzvah. uh, It got off on a low self-esteem note that my father was booked up on the weekend for my bar mitzvah. (laughs) I had to settle for a Tuesday afternoon,
4: early evening
6: bar mitzvah party. (laughs) Unheralded in the in the in in in, in the Torah. I mean, uh, I heard Moses grumbling, <laughs> well, "How can he do that to his son?" Rah! But what happened was, <clears throat> I understood. You know, he had a he had a job to do. And uh, Tuesday night was sort of hip. Now that I think of it, but b- before the party, I had to uh, the Saturday before. I had to read what they call the Haftorah, or Haftorah, I'm very bad <laughs> with the accents here, but. Um, what happened was that I started screwing up a little bit, and I saw some of the congregation getting, getting a little uneasy, and then I started doing stand-up. I went, oh, I'm kidding, Jonah and the Whale, come on. And I started playing uh, the temple like a lounge.
1: Richard Lewis speaking to Terry Gross in 1988. We'll hear excerpts of a more recent conversation after a break. This is Fresh Air.
5: This message comes from NPR sponsor, BritBox, helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original drama, Time, starring Jodie Whittaker, Tamara Lawrence, and Bella Ramsey, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Squarespace. Measure your end-to-end online performance with powerful website and seller analytics. Get insights on top traffic sources, understand how your reach is growing, and more. Use code NPR to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, the American Cancer Society. Every 15 seconds, someone is diagnosed with cancer. By the end of this message, you could do something about it with your donation. Donate today at cancer.org.
1: We're remembering Richard Lewis, who spent 50 years on stage as a stand-up comic. He died Tuesday of a heart attack at age 76. Terry Gross spoke with him again in the year 2000 when he had just published his memoir, The Other Great Depression, in which he wrote about his struggles with alcohol, drugs, and depression. His father died when he was young, and Terry asked him if his mother was able to accept his comedy about his parents.
6: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, my mother had a, had a great sense of humor, and uh, I'm not mean-spirited. Uh, I, I I can really say that, and my comedy. When I talk about other people, it's you know the craft of comedy is you know hyperbole certainly is a a big part of it, and uh, I would exaggerate, but always the truth, and she would be the first to admit, at least privately. That she would do that, you know. I mean, I, I remember one of a joke I wrote like 30 years ago, and I use this because it was very economical, and I'm sort of proud of the joke because it was it's a good it was a good joke. It was about how bored I would be driving across country with my family, and how unspontaneous they would be, and how it would drive me crazy. And I, of course, I embellished it. We never did drive across country, but I had us backing out of our driveway from our hometown in Englewood, New Jersey. Going driving to San Francisco, and her jiggling something in her hand, I said, Mother, what is that? What are you doing? You're making me crazy. And she says, I have the tolls ready for the Golden Gate Bridge. And that and that to me was, you know, <laughs> would have basically... And the audiences <laughs> always screamed at that because, you know, I, I had to set it up properly, but that was like, you drive with this family for 3,300 miles. You know, that's where it was at. And uh, when I would say something that would really hit home... Um she would sometimes she would never get angry. In fact, she would sometimes call me at the hotel in New York and say, Don't forget to mock me tonight on Letterman, you know what I mean? So I think she had a love hate thing with it, you know?
4: Yeah, when you talk about your neurosis, I can relate to some of that and say, Yeah, no, that's really funny, and maybe I'll feel a little bit about better about myself. So are you gonna feel better about yourself if I laugh at your jokes about Absolutely. your neuroses?
6: I really do feel validated, you know, that I'm not alone. I do. I, there's no question. I feel less alone. I mean, there's nothing worse when I try to, you know, tell uh, have a riff on stage about a, a problem that's making me depressed, and I'm looking at an audience, be it 300 or 3,000, and there's silence. I'm saying, wow, I mean, I mean, there's a thin line between narcissism and entertainment, and that's pure narcissism, you know, and you truly really try to, you know, you know, my goal is to entertain people, but if I can entertain them and get laughs to boot... And applause about problems that I'm having. It only means, like what you just said, that you know they can relate, and um, that's my goal.
4: Well, the last thing you want to do is to share your problems on stage in a way that you think is really funny, and instead of people laughing, they feel sorry for you.
6: Yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I. Has that ever I, happened to you? Yes. Once I said, uh, you know, I'm not a complainer, and three thousand people moaned. <laughs> and, I, and I almost. I mean, I, if there was a trapdoor in that concert hall, I would have gone down it. <laughs>
4: Your comedy has always been about, um, well, y- yourself and neurosis right. and uh, hypochondria, et, et cetera. Um, how did you know when you started in comedy that you were going to be your subject matter and that your insecurities were going to be what your comedy was about?
6: Well, you know, when I started out in like '71, you know, um, a lot of a lot of comedy was, you know, observational comedy. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons I went on stage is because I felt, you know, very alienated. You know, uh, I didn't I didn't feel uh, I didn't get the kind of nurturing that I felt. I just didn't feel nurtured and and, and 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 appreciated as much as probably I I wanted to. So I needed the adulation from from strangers, really from audiences. And when I was starting to I started writing jokes before I went on stage for, uh, as they say, these Catskill comedians and Borscht Belt comedians, um, and they were rejecting most of the good stuff, and most of the good stuff was my real feelings about myself, and that was a real sign that, you know, I had to go on stage and, and, and do these jokes rather than throw them out, and they were about me. And plus, I didn't really like, I felt so judged growing up that I didn't really like to get on stage and tell audiences, you know, did you ever notice this? Did you ever notice when you do that, that you feel this way? That was the last thing I wanted to do. What I wanted to do was talk about how I was feeling and pray to God that it was relatable and that people laughed. And, you know, three decades later, they, you know, they still are mostly. So I guess I, you know, I struck a nerve.
1: Richard Lewis, speaking to Terry Gross in 2000. The stand-up comedian and frequent Curb Your Enthusiasm guest star died Tuesday. He was 76 years old. Here's another clip from an early stand-up routine.
6: I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't mind being with the family on Hanukkah because being on the road, like I was in the Deep South about two years ago on Hanukkah, they thought, I swear to God, they thought Hanukkah was a duck call. That's all I know. is was like Hanukkah, pull, shoot. <laughs> thought, you know, I tiptoed around the Deep South on Hanukkah. I just want a sandwich. I'll be fine. Just let me have a sandwich. <laughs> But Hanukkah, Christmas, I, we, we didn't know what we were, quite frankly. It was sort of a, uh, I, I really don't know what we were. We had like a, there was a Christmas tree, and yet, yet it was a Hanukkah bush. It was sort of like a, sort of like an elephant man kind of thing there. It was like, they had balls hanging down, and yet there was like a picture of gold in my ear, sort of over here. It, was, it wasn't was Hanukkah, it wasn't Christmas, it was Kronika. We had Kronika.
1: After a break... Film critic Justin Chang reviews the long delayed science fiction sequel, Dune Part 2. This is Fresh Air.
5: This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because CarMax believes you shouldn't just settle for a car, you should love your car. That's why every car they sell has CarMax-certified quality, so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. Don't settle, find love at first drive. Start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on
1: social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch, and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits,
5: there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Support for this podcast
4: comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's fresh air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation.
1: Dune Part 2, the second half of the blockbuster adaptation of Frank Herbert's 1965 science fiction novel, was supposed to open in theaters last fall, but was delayed because of the strikes by Hollywood writers and actors. The movie, with a cast led by Timothy Chalamet, Zendaya, and Javier Bardem, is now opening in theaters. Our film critic, Justin Chang, has this review.
7: Dune Part 2 picks up right where Dune Part 1 left off. It's still the year 10,191, and we're back on Arrakis, a remote desert planet with vast reserves of spice, the most coveted substance in the universe. The villains of House Harkonnen have regained control of Arrakis after defeating the benevolent leaders of House Atreides. But hope survives in the form of the young hero Paul Atreides, who has fled into the desert. Paul is played again by Timothy Chalamet, whose performance has matured alongside the character. Paul still has his boyish vulnerability, but now he may be tasked with leading a revolution. Paul has taken refuge among the Bedouin-like nomads known as the Fremen, many of whom believe he is a messiah-like figure, who, according to prophecy, will help them defeat their Harkonnen oppressors. To be accepted by the Fremen, Paul must learn their ways and pass the ultimate test by riding one of the deadly giant sandworms that continually roam the desert. In this scene, the Fremen warrior Stilgar, played with wry avuncular wit by Javier Bardem, gives Paul the device he needs to summon the worm, plus a little pep talk. He calls Paul by his adopted Fremen name, Usul, and refers to the worm as Shai Hulud. I tune it myself. Here. Thanks. Don't try to impress anyone. You're brave, we all know that. Eh? Be simple, be direct. Nothing fancy. Nothing fancy. Hey, I'm serious, nothing fancy. You will shame my teaching. I won't shame you, I understand. Shai Hulu decides today if you become Freeman, or if you die. Paul successfully rides the worm, and it's the movie's single most thrilling sequence. One of those rare moments when you can feel the director, Denis Villeneuve, flexing every blockbuster muscle in his body. With its heightened life-or-death stakes, and sometimes staggering large-scale action sequences, Dune Part 2 is certainly a more exciting and eventful journey than Dune Part 1. But even here, the high points are over too soon, and the movie quickly moves on. Villeneuve is an impressive builder of sci-fi worlds, but his storytelling is too mechanical to sustain a real sense of awe. Admittedly, there is a ton of plot to get through in Frank Herbert's original novel, a dense saga of feudal warfare and environmental decay. Paul leads a mighty Fremen insurgency against the Harkonnens, Destroying their troops and disrupting their spice mining operations. Paul also occasionally clashes with his noble mother, Lady Jessica, who ushers in some of the movie's more mind bending sequences trippy hallucinations, spooky religious rituals, and a subplot involving a telepathic fetus that reminded me of The Star Child from 2001. Lady Jessica is played by the formidable Rebecca Ferguson who keeps you guessing about her character's motives as she urges Paul to embrace his divine calling. But she gets fierce pushback from a Fremen warrior, Chani, with whom Paul has fallen in love. Chani, played by a terrific Zendaya, rejects the prophecy entirely and urges Paul not to buy into it. Eventually, Paul comes to the cynical realization that it doesn't matter if he's a messiah or not, so long as his followers believe he is. Villeneuve, who co-wrote the script with John Spates, shrewdly calls Paul's heroism into question, and in doing so pushes back against the common accusation that Dune is just another white savior fantasy. That said, the movie isn't as adept at handling the various influences that Herbert wove into the novel, which draws heavily on Arab culture and Muslim beliefs. As such, it's hard to watch the movie and not think about current conflicts in the Middle East and wonder if it will have anything trenchant or meaningful to say about them. That's a lot to ask of even the smartest, gutsiest blockbuster. But Dune Part 2 doesn't rise to the occasion. It ultimately treats politics as superficially as it treats everything else. For all Villeneuve's astounding craftsmanship, there's a blankness to his filmmaking that I can't get past, even when he's introducing a frightening Harkonnen villain played by Austin Butler, who's utterly unrecognizable here as the star of Elvis. What this Dune needed was a director with not just a massive budget and an exacting design sense, but a touch of madness in his spirit. Someone like David Lynch, who famously directed a much-maligned adaptation of Dune back in 1984. That movie was a flop, But as always, box office only tells part of the story. For sheer grotesque poetry and visionary grandeur, Lynch's film still worms its way into my imagination in a way that this one never will.
1: Justin Chang is a film critic at The New Yorker. He reviewed Dune Part 2, now in theaters. On Monday's show, RuPaul, creator and host of the reality competition show RuPaul's Drag Race. The TV series has run for 16 seasons, for which he has won 14 Emmys. Now, RuPaul has a memoir about growing up black, poor, and queer, and how he forged a new and glamorous life in punk rock and drag. I hope you can join us. To keep up with what's on the show and get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Sherrock. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Al Banks. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C. V. Nesper. For Terry Gross and Tanya Mosley, I'm David B. This message
0: comes from NPR sponsor Anthropic. Their Claude 3 model family is enterprise-ready AI. Haiku is fast and cost-effective. Sonnet perfectly balances skill with speed. And Opus sets new intelligence industry benchmarks. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on
5: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, where hundreds of researchers and clinicians make new discoveries inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber scientists. See why nothing is as effective against cancer as a relentless succession of breakthroughs. Learn more about their momentum. Go to DanaFarber.org slash everywhere.